Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. This is Attorney Charles Marshall, and I'm here on the West Coast Foreclosure Show. It is May 3rd, 2008. Just a quick reminder, uh, Neil is hosting the show every other week, and then I'm on alternate Thursdays. Uh, This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.LivingLies.wordpress.com. And as always, I'm happy to have Bill Padalo on with me for our radio program today. Uh, Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Good to be here. So, as a little bit of a preamble of what we are discussing today, Bill and I on the show, it has to do with this somewhat complex a legal principle called bankruptcy preemption. And there are several intersections to this, and Bill will be able to provide some good intel and some good insight on how this all works. Now, this all comes from a very recently decided Tenth Circuit appeal case. Now, some of you may be wondering, how does this connect with the West Coast Foreclosure Show? One of the ways it connects is the Tenth Circuit, many of their cases are non-judicial foreclosure because like the Far West states, when homeowner legal actions and homeowner legal conflicts came about, even going back to the 1800s, there weren't courts around, particularly around the corner, to petition grievances, no matter what side of the loan you were on. So the non-judicial foreclosure setup is so often seen in Western states precisely because it was a way of disposing of these legal matters without having to go to court, without having to get in front of a judge. In any event, this particular case, the uh, Pembroke Living Trust case, it, uh, it does involve U.S. Bank National Association. 
which is trustee for Awamu Securitized Trust. And it, the, the actual appellate case was, was literally just decided on April 27th. So we're talking just last week. And it is out of Colorado. It is non-judicial. Uh, it has to do with rescission, but what Bill and I are talking about today is not going to uh, really intersect with the Tiller rescission arguments. This is something I anticipate taking up on a future show. This show is going to be devoted to this idea of bankruptcy preemption and how for many years Chase has been able to hide behind what's called the Financial Institutions Reform Recovery and Enforcement Act of 1989. And that's a mouthful, of course. The acronym, you could almost call it FIREA, F-I-R-R-E-A. Now, uh, Washington Mutual, and then, of course, through Chase, where these, these matters are litigated, including the bankruptcy court, they're the ones that are, that are intersecting with all this. And one of the powerful things that happened in this ruling even though it did go against the rescission. One of the powerful things that happened in this ruling is the court did address the idea or did address the, the objection of the defendant. It was a standing objection saying that, which we, we see all the time, but this is a little bit different context. Here they, they were claiming there wasn't even subject matter jurisdiction for the court to hear the plaintiff's position, which is, you know, yes, that's a standing argument, but it's, it's even more fundamental than some of the standing arguments that we've seen so typically in these cases. So with the subject matter jurisdiction objection, part of the basis for that, and I would say the, the primary basis, was that when the FDIC took over Washington Mutual's book of business, in a receivership. Remember, this was all back in September 2008. When they did so, they did so to keep a kind of bankruptcy protective gauze over the assets and liabilities while they were transferred to Chase. Now, Chase took on all the assets and liabilities of WAMU, and, you know, as relates to specific loans, securitized or not, mortgage loans. And then the FTIC got involved to, you know, what a bankruptcy receiver is, is supposed to do uh, and is entrusted to do is see that they, the, the amount of money at issue is distributed to the proper creditors. So what happens is, when you have a bankruptcy receivership, and oftentimes receivers will be imposed on the bankrupt party, and that essentially happened here. When WAMU went bankrupt, they were kind of forced into bankrupt, and they were forced into a receivership. And the claims that somebody could bring against Washington Mutual once they declared bankruptcy, they would have had to have been raised by December 30th, 2008, within the bankruptcy. 
And this applied to small litigants as well. So, you know, even the types of non-judicial foreclosure lawsuits that we see, hypothetically, this this FDIC taking over of the WAMU assets and, and legally setting them, setting them up for transfer to Chase and the FDIC overseeing this whole process, when they have this bar date of December 30th, 2008, what that's meant in the real world, particularly with the fiery, FIREA intersection I mentioned earlier, what this means is in the real world, according to this judicial ruling, the Pembroke ruling, is that while this case was in receivership, if there were uh, assignments going on and specifically the endorsement of notes that's at, you know, that is the subject of today's show, where the uh, endorsement of notes was taking place, those endorsements would have had to have taken place after March 19th, 2012. Now, why? why? Why would it be March 19th, 2012, the trigger date? Because what this ruling is saying is that while the receivership was in control of the WAMU assets as they were legally essentially transitioned to Chase, while that receivership was going on, and it went on for several years, from September 2008 to March 19, 2012, during that pendency, during that time, if any assignments occurred, including endorsements in, in, in blank or not, then the way that, that plays out in the legal world is those assignments would have had to have been challenged uh, years previously, which makes no sense, of course. So at least the ruling is allowing assignments that occurred after March 19, 2012 to be challenged. And the defendants in those cases cannot hide behind this bankruptcy preemption notion. Uh, so I know that's a lot to unpack. Uh, Bill has always got great insights on matters, and I've got, I know he's got some good info and intel on this ruling and the related principles, if you could go into those now, Bill, for the for the listeners today. Yeah, sure. Um, obviously, this is a case that didn't go in the homeowner's favor really at all. It was kind of uh, shot down for uh, estoppel issues and res judicata and so on and so forth. But sometimes, again, with these rulings, you'll get these silver linings and you'll get some good clarification that sort of leaves a, a roadmap on uh, on how to uh, argue against this type of FIREA defense, which uh, since I've been doing my uh, line of work for years since the uh, crash and the receivership of WAMU, um, I have come up in cases uh, too, too many to count uh, with this FIREA argument and FIREA defense. Now, as I'm listening to you there, Charles, I was I, I, I'm maybe a little bit unsure when you say that this ruling, because I didn't quite read it maybe the same way, uh, that these endorsements or assignments occurring after the discharge of the receivership on March 19th of 2012, kind of what I saw here, and I might be wrong, is that the particular facts of the case in this Pembroke case is that 
they were saying that the uh, endorsement they were challenging had to have occurred sometime between 2012 and 2014, uh, and that's what brought them to the ultimate analysis that um, these acts of what were alleged to be misconduct um, occurred certainly after the receivership. Now, I, I was kind of interpreting it as after the receivership date of uh, September 25th of 2008 that um, any, anything that occurs by because at that point in time, you know, WAMA was essentially a, a dead entity. It's it's in the receivership. It's gone into the bankruptcy, uh, and it's tied up in that. But when you have Chase or whomever's other entities taking control and now starting to execute documents, um, clearly, if it's outside of that discharge date of March nineteenth, two thousand twelve, and you know, certainly that's that's an issue. But I'm also I was also under the impression that it's an issue uh, of Chase or whomever executing these documents on behalf of these WAMU transactions uh, while in the receivership as well. But I'll let you um, clarify that in just a moment. But um, what I see here in, in this roadmap and what the Tenth Circuit is saying is that, and and I've, I've seen the arguments um, probably made the wrong way for, for a long time when people in these non-judicial settings would come uh, to try to challenge. They'd come in, they'd have a WAMU note. Maybe it was securitized. Maybe a trust could be identified, whatever that might be. And they would preemptively file a complaint to try to stop the non-judicial foreclosure. Many of the allegations were made in the early days on, and even some to this day as, as case laws, you know, gotten better and more formulated. But the arguments always seem to be a sort of uh, directed at the acts of WAMU. So if the argument was a securitization fail in the early days uh, saying WAMU never transferred it to the trust or, uh, you know, whatever it might be, these WAMU officers did this or that or whatever, I think that was kind of playing right into the hands of uh, the Spirea defense because what the Tenth is saying right here is that, <clears throat> you know, clearly uh, – these challenges to these transactions post-receivership, uh, whatever that date might be, um, clearly falls outside of that uh, FIREA defense and the jurisdiction argument. Um, and, and, and now, to me, where I see this as being really beneficial uh, in any case that's coming forth with a WAMU note claiming to have gone through the receivership who's facing a foreclosure is that now we know that one, the FIREA argument cannot be used, at least according to you know this persuasive decision here, in, in blocking and challenging that type of uh, an argument or a defense. Um, but number two, it allows uh, the whole endorsement on the note to become an issue of fact that needs to be adjudicated. And we know I know, and I've been, we've been talking about this on the radio programs and on the blog sites, <clears throat> that we now have such an overwhelming abundance of evidence to show and to prove by even Chase's own admissions that these notes um, are being endorsed by WAMU officers after the fact. So if FIREA is now barred from, as, as the I call it, the get-out-of-jail-free card that they've been getting away with and using in every one of these cases over and over and over repeatedly, if you can now make this an issue of fact, I'm convinced that 
Chase or whomever the services servicers are that are putting these endorsements on for purposes of the litigation, they have nowhere to go. They have no witnesses who will speak to it, the dates on it. We know the servicing system screenshots. We can prove, you know, that these things are simply being forged. And uh, and now removing this firea, I think, is a tremendous um, opportunity to now start to, you know, craft these pleadings and these defenses or uh if you're filing a complaint on it it's it's you've got to do this now uh this gives you the roadmap and how to do it properly and i think this is a this is a, a, a door opening i agree with you bill and and on this this technical but important issue of what does this court mean by post receivership um, that is not entirely clear and I'm going to go back and look at some related cases and do some cross-referencing to see when they're talking post-receivership, do they mean after the receiver was initially appointed, which would take this all back to September 25, 2008. In other words, then it would put any uh, assignment after that time in play and would essentially put all of the WAMU to chase uh, illegal uh, or troubled assignments in play in terms of a potential litigation framework? Um, or is the court meaning to say that post-receivership is after the receivership was legally dissolved? And again, the date for that is September, or rather March 19, 2012. So that is an important issue uh, because it, it, it will impact how many loans, what kinds of assignments, when they're made. The, the whole architecture of that and when and how those can be challenged, it is going to be uh, quite significant whether that post-receivership language is meant to apply in 2008 or 2012. Uh, my, my initial take is that it's meant to apply only after 2012, but I would certainly like to see that, it's, that the intention is really to have it apply from 2008 on. And that is something that uh, we will be able to get clarified in, in yeah, the coming looking, days. And, and, and reading this a little bit, this deals with a Cynthia Riley endorsed note, and, there, and a lot of listeners who are listening who have WAMU notes uh, from vintage uh, 05, 06, 07. I'm sure you're familiar with that name. Um, but what they're saying yeah. in here is that the pre-receivership conduct of Miss Riley um, on the note it w was that issue, and they're saying that uh, the argument in the in the underlying action was that. Her endorsement was placed on the note to shore up title problems by fraudulently placing her endorsement on uh, this note after she no longer had endorsement authority. So what that's telling me is obviously um, when WAMU fails and goes under, uh, you know, they, they don't have the authority. WAMU isn't alive and breathing anymore. Uh, Cynthia Riley, whether she worked there or not, and there's a lot of evidence as to where she testified she wasn't even working there since 2006 uh, when she left in November. But aside from that, the court is saying that 
what that that would be post receivership conduct or misconduct or whatever the allegations are that her endorsement was placed to shore up the title issues after she no longer had that authority. So anyway, we it's it's not real crystal clear there, but um I'm 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 hoping that when uh, if we look into this a little deeper that that's that's where we're going is that that it's these documents being created uh even in the receivership and post receivership. Now if it's in the receivership during that time period, let's say let's say you know it is 2000 September of 08 to March of 12, um, you know it, the, we have this evidence to show in the letters between Chase, for example, and the FDIC, where they are discussing the fact that they are going to uh, place these endorsements um, with the blessing of the FDIC upon these notes to shore up title on loans that were not on the books of WAMU. Uh, so we have all of these uh, admissions of, of this type of activity, and I, and I like the wording here that the court uses saying, listen, that this is an allegation of misconduct. And, um, and I've been saying that for years, and everybody who's been fighting this has been saying it for years, that um, these trumped-up documents and endorsements and everything else um, are forgeries, are fraudulent. Uh, they don't have any personal knowledge of this information, and they're just simply churning this stuff out uh, in robo-style fashion. And um, So anyway, I'm, I think this was a, a very nice nugget to, to uh, uh, thank the Tenth Circuit for giving us this guidance, because um, I think this is going to give Chase and the other servicers, and, and you know, this doesn't just apply to WAMU and Chase. I mean, this applies to IndyMac loans, um, all kinds of other large institutions that went into receivership as well. So I've seen the FIREA defense in IndyMac. Uh, you know, I, I got a whole laundry list of the bank failures back at that time. This just happens to be uh, what the court addresses, and WAMU was one of my uh, specialties, I, I guess you could say, in, in the years of what I've been investigating. This is a, an area that I've been really, really focused on for a long time, as you well know. So um, so I think this gives us uh, some, some good guidance on, um, on, on how to attack this stuff moving forward. Uh, very much agreed, Bill, and I, I do like your analysis, and of course, anything that benefits you know, our listeners, the borrowers out there, you know, everyone who's continuing to fight this fight to vindicate the rights of borrowers, and we would love to see that it's from 2008 on, not 2012. That, that that's the intent of this appellate court regarding the bankruptcy preemption issue. And you mentioned some aspects for why that makes sense, and even within the ruling, the court seems to be saying that. And just to kind of recap and put my own interpretation on that, that line of thinking is very much consistent with the principle that once the receivership happens, and this is a bankruptcy period, bankruptcy principle period, uh, when you're in bankruptcy, you're not supposed to be, you know, recording new documents, recording new instruments, or, or even executing written assignments. You would actually need, whether you're talking about an individual borrower who has a home and they themselves might want to uh, – 
assign or, or somehow segregate title to their property, take somebody on or off title as a partial holder of, of deed interest, that's considered illegal unless you get court permission during the pendency of the bankruptcy. It's also considered illegal for the creditor to do that. If they were to record documents during the pendency of the bankruptcy, and unfortunately we have seen uh, attorneys who work in this area, and I'm sure some of our listeners out there, we have seen notices of default recorded during the pendency of a bankruptcy, even though that's absolutely prohibited, and it's not supposed to happen without having a motion for relief from stay granted by the court after after presentation, after a formal motion. So here it's analytically quite sensible to say when post-receivership is discussed by the court, what they mean and what they mean by post-receivership misconduct is after the receiver took over because there's not supposed to be continuing uh, assignments. They're not supposed to be continuing uh, written legal instruments uh, being put forward while the receivership, while the bankruptcy is, is basically at play. So in that sense, you know, I appreciate your analysis, Bill, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, with the remaining time that we have here, uh, I would like to go to a little bit of a segue here. It, it has to do with another bankruptcy preemption aspect that I think a lot of listeners are familiar with. And even though it's not strictly related to our topic here, it's similar, and that's the judicial estoppel bankruptcy preemption problem argument that comes up in a lot of non-judicial foreclosure cases. And you can even see it sometimes in judicial foreclosure cases, but it's very common in non-judicial foreclosure cases where the borrower plaintiff is trying to press their case. And one of the defenses on the part of the institutional defendants will be, oh, well, okay, you're saying you have a claim against, you know, me, the institutional defendant, but you, borrower, declared bankruptcy two, you know, two months ago, two years ago. I mean, I've seen seven or eight years ago. And at the time that you had your bankruptcy uh, considered by the court, and at the time that your bankruptcy was either discharged or just dismissed, particularly Chapter 13s, Chapter 11s are often dismissed without a final resolution. In any case, when you go back over all of that time period, what will happen is the defendants will say, well, you're judicially stopped from bringing this case now because you never listed this claim on your bankruptcy schedules. You never put this, for instance, on your Schedule B. And this is something listeners will appreciate who've had to go through bankruptcy. If you're dealing with either a Chapter 7 or a Chapter 13, which would be the typical scenario for a consumer borrower, you're supposed to list all of your claims on Schedule B. So 
what the defendants will say, the institutional defendants will say, look, okay, your bankruptcy was seven years ago, but guess what? You should have known about this lawsuit that you're in right now and this lawsuit that you filed against me, the institutional defendant. You should have known about this seven or eight years ago, and you should have listed it on your Schedule B, and because you didn't do it, you're judicially stopped from going forward. Now, under the case law, even under the statutory law, you're supposed to show fraud. You're supposed to show that when this case, when this case is going forward now, there's fraud involved. And that's all we will have time for today. Neil will be back next week. I appreciate you being on, as always, Bill. My pleasure. And uh, we will be back again. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.